Well, why don't you grab your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Old Testament, uh, about a quarter of your way into your Bible, probably. We're going to look back into the Jordan River. Uh, It's a story that is uh, sort of an obscure story of the Jordan, but it's a good story. We've been talking about salvation uh, in regards to evangelism. Uh, we finished the book of Colossians just a couple weeks back. And you remember the last lesson from Paul in the book of Colossians was, as you might expect, what we're to do with the message that we now have. What we're to do with the information and the salvation that we have been entrusted. We're to take it out and we're to spread it. When God opens doors, we are to be able to speak it boldly, clearly, and correctly. That's our job. And it's really just a natural response to uh, the good news in our own life. And then last week, we took a look into uh, Joshua 3. We looked at the geography of uh, Israel and the Jordan, from the uh, Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And we basically saw God painting a portrait of salvation on his creation. A great image in the great story of Joshua and the nation of Israel crossing the Red Sea. An image of us crossing uh, the lines of judgment on dry ground. Uh, because God is presence in the midst of the river. This week, I want to take you back to the Jordan in 2 Kings chapter 5, and I want to tell you the story of a guy named Naaman. And we're just going to track through it here, and uh, I want to just let this guy's story unfold to you. And if you will, uh, knowing that we're talking about evangelism, and knowing that we're talking about the salvation story, you know, what does it mean to know the good news clearly and correctly so that we might be able to share it with someone else? Would you just, as we go through this, would you just be uh, the investigator? Why don't you look for principles in this passage that might help you to understand how we are to approach other people with the gospel? What are the dynamics that go into the salvation of a human being? All right. Would you look for those things? And I'm going to point out some of them, but maybe you're going to see more. Okay. Second Kings chapter five. Let's read about Naaman. Now, Naaman captain of the army of the king of Aram, that's the Syrians, was a great man. Now, notice some points that the author makes about this guy, okay? Naaman was, number one, he was captain. That's a pretty big deal. Number two, he was a great man. Not just a captain, he was a great man. Uh, With his master, meaning the king that he served under. He was very well respected by his authorities. So he was a captain, he was a great man, he was a respected man. Not only that, he was highly respected... Uh, because of him, by the Lord, had given victory to Aram. Uh, Jewish tradition says that this is the guy who shot the arrow that caught the king, uh, Ahab, in the foot. And that won the war for the Syrians. Okay, So Jewish tradition holds this guy in high esteem. They say that he is the guy that God used to judge the nation of Israel. And so he's a pretty significant man, by all accounts. Not just that, this man was a valiant warrior. I mean, so if you get an image of this guy, he's, you know, he's uh, Charleston Heston. He's, you know, straight out of Tombstone, okay? I mean, he's Augustus McRae from Lonesome Dove. This is a rough guy. He's highly respected. He's a captain, but he's not just a captain who sits back and watches his men go out to war. He is a valiant warrior himself. So this is a tough dude. By all indications, this guy should be elevated in our sight, Okay? Look at the end of the verse. He's got one problem, though. You see it? But he was a leper. 
Now, if you know anything about leprosy in the Old Testament, uh, leprosy refers to uh, a number of skin inflammations and diseases in the Old Testament. And those guys uh, weren't highly esteemed, just the opposite. They were shunned and they were separated. So by all worldly standards, this guy should be top-notch, except he's got one small problem. He just happens to be a leper. We'll keep going here. Now the Arameans, verse 2, had gone out in bands, that's the Syrians, and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. This little girl was an Israeli girl, she was a Jew, who was taken captive when the Syrians overthrew Israel. And so she's a slave. And now she's become a slave in Naaman's wife's house. So she served Naaman's family, specifically Naaman's wife. Okay. Verse 3 Here's what she said to her mistress. This is Naaman's wife. Check this out. I wish that my master, referring to Naaman, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So, follow the story here. Naaman, a great man. He's got one problem. He's dying of this thing, this disease. I mean, he's got... Stuff falling off his body here. He's got a big problem. No matter how great he is, he's got one big problem. He's going to die from this disease. But it just so happens that in the providence of God, Israel, although they were uh, defeated by the Syrians, God has placed this little girl, she doesn't even get her name mentioned in the passage, in the house of Naaman. She's serving Naaman's wife. And she has two things going for her here that I noticed last night. Number one, she has compassion. Did you notice that? She says, I wish. This little girl, who's not even named, says, you know what? Although I'm a servant to these people, I wish that my master could be with the prophet. The prophet of God in Israel. See, she has compassion on the one whom she's serving. Even though she's a slave, she sees that this may be a great man, but he's got a big problem. And so she has compassion upon him. You know what else she has? She has confidence in her God. Do you see that? I wish that my master could go and go to the prophet of my God. And then at the end of the verse, because if he could, he would be healed. No doubt about it in her mind. So she has compassion on Naaman, but she's also confident in the powers of her God. Pretty big little girl. We'll come back to her in a minute. Verse 4. What do you think Naaman is going to think of the words of this little girl? If you didn't read verse 4, what might you think verse 4 is going to say? I would think that verse 4 is going to say, And Naaman uh, went on his way, a wampin' and a stompin', all throughout the nation doing his deal, killing people left and right, and he disregards the words of this little girl with no name. But that's not what verse 4 says. Check it out. Verse 4 says, Naaman went in and told his master, that's Naaman's king, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Basically, he goes to his boss and he says, Hey, boss, listen to what this servant girl from Israel in my house said. Apparently, there's a prophet in Israel. And he can heal me. 
The inference here is that he goes to his king so that he can get permission to go to this prophet. Now, what would make this mighty, warrior, uh, well-respected man do such a thing on the word of a little no-name girl? What do you think? Can I tell you that when uh, leprosy strikes, maybe you get a little humble? How many of you know folks who uh, openly mock God, the things of God, the people of God, but when something goes wrong, they hit their knees? You ever known anybody like that? Uh, A buddy of mine and I, in college, we were freshmen in college, playing on the football team. We lived in a football dorm that was about 100 football players shoved in this one dorm that was built in 1606, okay? And uh, as you can imagine, a football dorm full of 100 football players with no air conditioning, it's, it's going to be a funky place. It's going to be a rough place. It wasn't the most spiritual place to live, okay? Let's just put it that way. So me and a buddy of mine, we were one of uh, maybe a dozen, and I'll be generous, Christians on the whole team. And we decided as freshmen we were going to start this thing called dorm devotions. Every Wednesday night, we were going to order a couple pizzas, get a few liters of drink, and... Uh, put signs up around the dorm and say, come on, we're going to have a Bible study in room 106. Well, how do you think that went over? Yeah, not real good. After about the first three weeks of he and I sitting there in the room waiting for somebody to show up, looking at these two pieces, and nobody shows up but him and I, uh, we thought, well, maybe we need to change our strategy a little bit. So here's what we did. We went around, and on every hall, we we put signs up. On every bathroom door. We thought, you know, we need more publicity. That's what we need. So we, we canvassed the whole dorm. Four floors canvassed every... We put them in front of the urinals. We put them over the, over the stalls. We put them everywhere we could think of. And uh, about ten minutes before the Bible study was supposed to start, we'd go around and we'd knock on every door in that dorm. Started at nine o'clock, 8.45, we'd head out. Will would take one side of the dorm. I'd take the other side of the dorm. And we'd knock on every door there. And you can imagine the responses that we got, you know. Uh, overwhelmingly, they were like, oh, I can't believe I'm missing this. I've got to go, right? No, that's not what happened. Essentially, we got, you know, every uh, response in the book as to, nah, I got too much homework, or yeah, I got a date, or yeah, whatever. And just openly mocked us. We got some pretty interesting stuff, you know. I like to say that was our, that was our season of persecution, but really the only thing that got hurt was our pride, okay? But, uh... Can I tell you that uh, over the next several months and even a couple years, I noticed something interesting. When old boy's grandma got sick, when his dad came down with cancer, when his girlfriend dumped him and ran off with some old boy back home, guess who was knocking on whose door? 300-pound lineman sneaking his way down to one of our rooms saying, Hey, uh, I was wondering if you could pray for my pray for my grandmother. Something about being humbled by uh, what I like to call the paddle of life. The guy can get our attention. The guy who taught me the Bible told me a story of uh, this West Texas horse breeder. This guy was stout. I mean, he was Lou Ferrigno. And uh, he definitely walked straight out of Tombstone. I mean, he was hardened leather skin by the West Texas sun. This guy raced horses. And uh, he made a lot of money doing it. He was, by all indications, a great man. And he was successful at what he did. And he openly mocked God 
mocked the things of God and mocked the people of God. And he laughed anytime someone would tell him about uh, church, about Jesus. He would just laugh. Story goes that uh, this guy ended up hurting his back. And he had this chronic backache that he couldn't get rid of. And so he decided he was going to go to the doctor and let them operate on his back. And they were going to adjust some discs in there. I don't know. They went in and they did some work on his spine. Well, it turns out that during the surgery, uh, when the guy woke up, they realized that they made a little bit of a mistake. They accidentally drained all the fluid off the guy's spine somehow during the surgery. And I don't know a whole lot about anatomy and physiology, but I do know that there are a couple places in your body that you need fluid. One is around your brain and one is on your spine, okay? And they just accidentally, oops, we drained all the fluid off your spine. So what happens when you don't have any fluid on your spine is your spine becomes like this one big sand spur all the way up and down because you have no cushion. And it just, the guy said it would be like needles. He was in excruciating pain. He went from a chronic backache to now excruciating pain. Story goes that this guy fell to his knees, cried out to God, and that every time after this guy got saved, he would begin to talk about how God had saved him, although he still had this pain that he now had to live with, this huge, strapping, successful, rich, sun-hardened, leather-of-a-face guy. He would weep anytime anyone would talk about the grace of God. He would weep like a baby. You know, I can imagine that Naaman, Naaman is willing to do just about anything to get rid of his one little problem. So Naaman goes to his king, and here's what the king said, verse 5. The king of Aram said... Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, I want you to notice who the king is sending his letter to. The little girl said what? There is a prophet in Samaria who can heal you. There is a man of God in Samaria that can heal you. He goes to his king and says, hey, this little girl said thus and thus. And the king says, okay, you go. And here's what I'll do. I'll not only let you go, but I'll write you a letter to the king. Can I tell you that in this day, the prophet wasn't necessarily highly esteemed. Instead, well, let's do one better. She said, go to some prophet in Samaria. How about I write you a letter and you go straight to the king for your healing? So Naaman says, okay. Look at the rest of the verse. See what Naaman did. Second half of verse 5. He departed and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of of clothes. Naaman is on his way and he's packed his bags. He's got a letter from his king to the king of Israel. And he decides he's going to pack some stuff. Now, did you notice what he packed? This isn't just uh, enough money to get him along his way. And this ten changes of clothes aren't referenced to the luggage he packs for himself. What do you think Naaman's doing right here? Naaman is going to buy his healing. Now, how do you think that's going to go over? When Naaman arrives in Samaria to receive healing from the man of God, gets sidetracked and goes to the king instead, how do you think it's going to go over when he shows up with all of his wealth to try and impress and purchase his healing? 
We'll keep going here. Verse 6. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you, referring to the king, not the prophet, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Sounds good, doesn't it? Just one problem. The little girl didn't say go to the king. The little girl didn't say that the king of Israel could heal you. The little girl said that the man of God in Israel, the prophet of God, could heal you. Notice the response of the king of Israel. Great response. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Great response by the king of Israel. Does he really think that I have the power of life and death in my hands? Am I God? You see, the king of Israel knows that only God reserves the right to heal a man, to give life, and to grant death. Great response. A little bit of a comical response here at the end of that verse. See what else he says. He's a little bit paranoid here. He says, but consider now and see, he is seeking a quarrel against me. You know what the king of Israel thinks? He says, this guy must be, he must be trying something squirrely here. Somehow, this doesn't look right. Maybe he's going to attack us. I don't know what's going on. Well, the prophet gets word of what's going on in the king's chambers. Go to the next verse here. Elisha, the successor to Elijah. He hears of what's happening in the king's courts. Verse 8, it happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him, that's Naaman, come to me. And he shall what? He shall know certainty. He shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elijah knows what can happen here for the person of Naaman. And he says, you know what, king? This guy's in the wrong place. Send him to me. And I will heal him. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Well, verse 9. Naaman gets sent to Elijah. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. John Wayne rides up here with his chariot and his horses. You get the scene here? And it doesn't even say that he gets off his horse or gets out of his chariot. Why do you bring all these horses and chariots? You're trying to impress. He thinks, I'll bring all my wealth and I'll bring all of my possessions and surely this man in Israel will come out to me and he'll heal me. He'll see how esteemed I am. He'll see how important I am. You think Naaman's got any pride in him? I think so. Question, can you approach God for healing with a heart full of pride? Well, let's look and see how Elijah responds to John Wayne here. Verse 10, I love this verse. Elijah sent a messenger to him. Elijah basically sends out his little do boy and says, Yeah, if he's not getting off his horse, I'm not going out there to him. Servant boy, come here. Go out to Naaman, who thinks he's big stuff, and tell him here's what he needs to do. Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, 
and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Now, let me point out a couple things that are interesting in this verse. Number one, I like the fact that he sent out his messenger. If Naaman's not going to humble himself before God's, before God's man, well, Elijah's going to send out a, humble, uh, a humbling messenger to him. And so this messenger goes out, and here's what he says. He says, if you want to be healed, here's what you've got to do. The person of God said, go to the river of God's people, the Jordan. You remember the Jordan from last week? It represents the river of God's people. So here's what he tells them. Go to God's river, get in, and wash yourself. But how many times does he say to dunk? One time? No. Dunk seven times. Now, apart from being, uh, in the Bible, a perfect number, a number that symbolically means perfection, there's more to it than that. You see, the messenger says, Naaman, get off your horse, go to God's river, the river of God's people, and get in, and you dunk yourself seven times. Now, if you asked him to do it one time, that would be, that'd just be works. But he says, go in and do it seven times. What do you look like if you go in and you ride up to Elisha's house and he says, go to the river, wash yourself in the Jordan River? Well, you do what he tells you to do. You go and you wash yourself in the Jordan River. You're good to go and you come out clean. That might be fine. But he's going to make him do something a little, little special here. He says, go and do it seven times. Now, what do you look like if you go to the river and you're going to dunk yourself seven times? You look foolish. Frankly, you look foolish. To go and do it one time, I'll try that. To go and do it seven times means that I'm placing my faith in the words of the man who is a man of God. You see the difference? So go to God's river and do it God's way. Look at Naaman's response. Verse 11. But Naaman was furious. And he went away. And here's what he said. We get a little insight from the author on why Naaman left angry. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, speaking of Elisha the prophet. Surely he'll come out to me and uh, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands around me. I love this verse. Wave his hands all over the place and surely he'll, he'll cure the leprosy. You see, you see what Naaman wants? Naaman wants magic. I'm going to ride up on my horse. Let this man of Israel, whoever he is, come out to me. Have him wave his hands around, do his little hocus pocus, whatever. Slap me in the forehead. Slay me out right there. And uh, I'll be able to go on my way and be healed. Now you tell me. Is this something that our world wants today? Do they want the blessing from God without being obedient to God? Yeah. Naaman is a classic pagan in the Old Testament. He's a classic human in how we respond to God's way and to God's people. We come with pride. And when the man of God says, do it this way and do it this many times... To express our faith in that God? What do we do? We say, well, that's crazy. I mean, come on. Can't you just 
wave your hands, do your little hocus-pocus deal, sprinkle me with something, and then I can go away and be about my own business. He says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Frankly, that's not the way God works. You've got to do it the way God says. Look at the next verse. Another great insight into Naaman. Verse 12, Naaman says this. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, those are rivers back in his own homeland, are not, the, not those rivers better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? You see his attitude here? I can't believe that I came this whole way. I brought all this stuff. I mean, I'm obviously an important dude. I'm obviously wealthy. I'll give you whatever you want here. You know, just, just wave your hands. Let me go about my business. I'll pay you for whatever you do. And let me go back to my own life. I mean, I could have stayed in my town and got in a much better river than this river of Jordan. Point. The river of Jordan is not all that impressive. There's nothing about the appearance of the river of Jordan that Naaman would look at it and say, you know what, maybe if I do get in there, I might be washed clean. The river of Jordan is actually kind of dirty. It's not that impressive. And Naaman knows this. And so you see what his rationale is here? You know, I could go back to much better, more pleasing, beautiful rivers in my own hometown. I wouldn't have had to make this trek. And I can dunk in them and get cleaner than I can get in this Jordan. There's only one small problem. God said, get in the Jordan. God said, go down seven times. And so Naaman, at the end of verse 12, turned away and went away in a rage. 13, great verse here. The servants of Naaman came near to Naaman and spoke to him and said... They give, him a little, they give him a little wise counsel here. They try and speak some sense into him. This is a great insight, guys, into how we as humans respond to the, to the way God has said we become clean. Look at it here. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? You follow the logic here of the servant? You know, if Elijah would have told you to climb Mount Everest, if Elijah would have told you to swing, swim the English Channel, if Elijah would have told you to uh, cut down, you know, ten trees, find some special berry at the top of the tree, press it into a salve, rub it all over yourself, you would have done all of that, wouldn't you? And the inference is that Naaman says, yeah, I would have done something great. But he asked me to do something foolish. Something that doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I can think of better ways. But if he would ask me to do something grand, yeah, I would have done that. You know the difference between doing something grand and doing something the way God says it? It's the one who gets the glory. You see... You dunk down one time, I did what he told me to do. I got myself clean. You dunk down seven times, and you're trusting that on that seventh time, after you've come up dirty six times, still itching, stuff still falling off, 
that if you go down one more time, God is going to do what He said He would do. You see, if you climb Everest, well, then you come down successful. And you come down greater than you were when you were at the bottom. But if you do it God's way, you don't get any of the credit and you don't get any of the glory. Well, Naaman comes to his senses here. And in verse 14, he went down and dipped himself seven times in God's river, the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, he did what he told him to do. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. What does that remind you of? Restored the flesh like a little child. He was born again. He became like a newborn babe in his flesh. He did what God said to do through God's way, in God's place, at God's time. And he did it exactly how God told him to do it. And he was healed. He was born again. Nothing impressive about the Jordan when he went in. In fact... Just going in might have got him more dirty. You know what I would say? I would say that there was nothing in the appearance of the Jordan that would draw you to it. That you might be impressed by the Jordan. That you would go to it for your salvation. Who does that remind you of in the New Testament? That in his stature, that in his appearance, there was nothing so grand about him that we were drawn to him because of his appearance. But by his humbleness, because of his glory and his servanthood to us, we are drawn to him and we are humbled. Reminds me of Christ. Well, let me wrap this up. Let me give you seven principles here that I, that I drew out. There's more. You probably thought of a bunch as we went through this. Let me just give you seven quick ones, okay? And some of them are obvious, but I don't want you to miss them. Number one, no matter how impressive... A man is, there is always a but in his life. Amen? We are all going to die. We all have that one thing in common. That no matter how great we become, our life will end in death. Amen? And all mankind has that same problem that they have to deal with. Number two, no matter how insignificant you seem, remember you know the healer. No matter how insignificant you seem, Christian, remember that you know the healer and you know how to get there. This no-name girl who had no authority, no power, she knew one thing. She knew where her master could find healing. And she had compassion enough upon him that she sent him to the man of God. Amen? That's an impressive little girl. It only gets noted in one verse of Scripture. Did she get glory out of this? Nope. Did she do her job in the place where she was? She sure did. No matter what her circumstances, no matter what her surroundings, was she obedient to her king? She was. She says, I know a way, and I know in whom you can find your healing. She sent him there. Number three, healing doesn't come from who you know, how much you can afford, how much you can buy. Healing doesn't come by your own doing or by your own way. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the only way to life. Amen? There's only one way. 
We've got to do it God's way. Number four, God's way is foolishness to the sinful man. What did Naaman think about the Jordan River? It's a dump. It's an old muddy creek compared to the rivers back in Damascus. The way of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. The preaching of the gospel is like foolishness when it falls on the ears of those who are stuck in their sin. And we can come up with better ways. We can come up with ways that seem to make more sense than doing it God's simple way of repentance and faith. So God's way appears foolish. Number five, many will look to God not for salvation but for magic and blessing. Is this true? You come across people who, uh, when you talk to them about church or when you talk to them about spiritual things, when you talk to them about God, they could care less. All they want out of God is the blessing. But they don't want to have anything to do with obedience. God, give me the money, give me the health, give me the, give me the success in this world. Give me everything that I want. But I'm not going to be concerned about what you say to do. That's the, that's the position of humanity. Number six, salvation is by faith and never through works. Naaman couldn't do anything except for the foolish thing that God had told him to do. Number seven, while salvation is to man's benefit, it is always to God's glory. You catch that? While salvation is to man's benefit, it is always and only to God's glory. He's not going to let you climb Everest. He's not going to let you buy it. He's not going to let you impress your way into heaven. He is going to reserve the glory for the work for himself and for his son. Amen? So who are you in this story? Are you a Naaman? Are you, in and of yourself, a pretty good old boy? Are you, uh, by all indications, pretty well off? Have you realized that you got one big glaring problem? And one day it's going to consume you. Are you still trying to find your own way? Are you a Naaman? Or are you a little girl, slave girl in Israel, that is looking around to see who you might have compassion upon and how you might show your confidence in your God and how you might be obedient in the place where God has put you so that you could point others, those who are around you and who are dying in your midst? Are you there willing to point them to the one that can heal them. Not willing that you would get any glory. That your name might never be mentioned. Are you the little girl? Let's pray.